I have a question for you, and I need you to be honest with me before we go forward. I am going to ask you a question about Florida nature, and you have to tell the truth. I promise I won't judge you. Okay? All right. Did you know that seashells are made by and lived in by an actual animal? Because they are. All of them. Did you know that? The shells we find on the beach usually don't have an animal within them anymore, but sometimes they do. Either way, every single shell was created and lived in by an animal. It's okay if your answer was no. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that. If your answer was yes, when did you learn? How recent was it? People surprisingly don't know a lot about seashells for something that nearly every human being has interacted with. That's what today's episode is actually all about, giving the seashells their due. Let's go to the beach. You take one step onto a Florida beach and you see many sights. You see people splashing in the water, folks lounging on chairs with a trashy novel in their hands. You see big crews of people playing some kind of sport and you see families prowling the sand for a beautiful shell to bring home as a souvenir. When I was a kid, all I wanted to do was that last activity. All I wanted to do was to collect more and more shells. I am a collector by nature, after all. Most shells I grabbed were the standard ones, flat, domed ones. I promise I'll be more technical later in the episode. Usually the ones I wanted were the white or the pink ones. I still love pink shells. I have so many of them. One day, while searching the beaches with my grandmother on our annual beach vacation, we found a little shell, a conch, maybe. I was thrilled at the prize and brought it back to our balcony to dry out and eventually carry home to show off to other family members and classmates. A few days later, however, that plan turned sour as something began to stink to high heaven on the balcony. We couldn't figure out what it was. What was the neighbor doing? That was until we realized that there had been an animal still inside that shell when we grabbed it, and now it was dead, roasting in the sun. If I hadn't realized that shells were created by animals before then, I certainly learned the hard way in that exact moment. I haven't forgotten it ever since. How could I? The smell, I think, still lingers in my nose nearly two decades later. I am certainly not the first to have done this, nor will I be the last. How can a human being resist something as beautiful and tantalizing as a shell just resting on the beach for you to grab? We collect them, but we forget where they came from and what purpose they serve. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the conservation season, and this week our seashells, their variety, their role in our ecosystem, and what happens if they just disappear. My guest this week is Cynthia Barnett, an environmental journalist who wrote a book diving deep on all that and more on our seashells and us. To get to know seashells and Florida, we have to go back to where this season began, along the shores of the magnificent Sanibel Island. Sanibel is widely considered to be the hub of shelling in Florida, and there's good reason as to why. It is a barrier island, so it's situated further out into the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. Most barrier islands are closer to the peninsula, but Sanibel is a little further out and curved, meaning it mostly goes east and west rather than just north and south, as most barrier islands do. 
It also apparently has its own underwater shelf, allowing the shells to get swept upward to the beaches. All this contributes to making Sanibel and its sister island Captiva sort of a natural net for Florida's waters to dump its shells out onto the shore. The tides and currents carry the shells out, up, and onto our sands. I've walked many miles of Sanibel's shores, and I can tell you personally that the sand is rife with these hardened little shells every step of the way. In fact, for some parts of the beach, there's only shells, making it difficult to travel with ease because of the painful crunching beneath your feet. My favorite sight on Sanibel's shores are the little coquina shells, colorful tiny bivalves that disappear into the sand after arriving with the surf. They literally wiggle back into the sand. It's unbelievable, and Sanibel wears their title with pride as the seashell capital of the world. There is a shell museum there. It is the Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum. I regret to inform you that it is one of the few Sanibel locations I actually haven't visited yet. It's looking like I'll be making yearly episodes about Sanibel with this show, so we'll pay them a visit very soon. But I will tell you this, the Shell Museum began as a shell club, and the museum came to be in 1995 after a decade of the organization shaping and changing and finally constructing the existing building. Knowing the community of shell collectors that flocked to the island, there needed to be a gravitational pull, a place where they could all go, and that's what the museum became. On top of that, there are shell decorations on nearly every building. The hotels give out free shelling bags and provide shacks to wash out your shells. The hotel I stayed at had a printed tide schedule for the full week ahead so folks could figure out when they should wake up very, very early to see the earliest low tide of the day and grab the finest, shiniest shells. I did this myself on my last visit, though I couldn't quite get myself up before sunrise. Still, it was early and I was far from the only person on the beach that early morning in July. Older couples, family with kids, and joggers alike trotted up and down the beach, all stopping for shells and gathering them in any container which they could get their hands on. Nets, shopping bags, purses, pockets. It's part of visiting Sanibel. You have to look for shells. The shells leave their impacts even off the beach. There's an iconic shell shop called She Sells Sea Shells. I did have to say that more than once. It is situated right on the main road. And while I was there visiting my beloved bookshop, Jean's Books, one of my favorites in Florida, I picked up a copy of my guest's book. The book is called The Sound of the Sea. And my guest is its author, Cynthia Barnett. I'm Cynthia Barnett. I am a longtime environmental journalist who has mostly focused on water and climate in my career and for my last book the fourth the sound of the sea seashells and the fate of the oceans i have written about seashells and the fantastic marine mollusks that build seashells so it seems a little different from what i've done before but actually i think of it as kind of the ideal completion of the hydrological cycle. I've written books about freshwater. I wrote um, a biography of rain, and now I've turned to the ocean. So I like that idea of having completed the hydrological cycle. She's being quite literal. She has written about water and water in Florida in all its forms, from the disappearing water crisis in Florida over a decade ago, to conversations about how water can be more accessible to Americans, 
to, as she mentioned, a biography of rain, from how rain filled our oceans billions of years ago to how rain has changed in the modern era. Cynthia knows a lot about a lot, but she really knows a lot about water. How did you uh, get into writing about about water specifically? I mean, that's that's a pretty that's a pretty unique uh, uh, area of focus for a writer. How did that become sort of your your focus of writing? There was a pivotal moment. Um, I was actually a business reporter previously for many years, and I often covered development issues in Florida, and I did a lot of investigative um, work in Florida. And I, I had this, I had this basic question. We were in a, we were in a really epic drought, and I was writing about some developers who had been told they could not get a groundwater permit for their new subdivision because this part of Florida where they were building, it was in Southwest Florida and the water had been overtapped. And it was so shocking to me that the same group of characters in history who had got rid of all the water in the first place, right? The, the very same group that drained the wetlands we're now back 150 years later, having, um, you know, gotten rid of too much. So we're going to have to talk about this sometime in depth on the show for its own episode. But basically, from 2006 to 2008, Florida experienced a monumental drought, a drought so serious that Lake Okeechobee fell to an all time low, just below nine feet. Rivers stopped flowing and groundwater vanished. Rain didn't do its job in this period, and after decades of development in Florida, water just wasn't flowing the way that it should. Water became a commodity in a state where water is an essential feature of our ecology. Developers started to get desperate, as Cynthia mentioned, and the work to get it back was intense. And I thought, how did that happen? <laughs> and that and that kind of that one question, how how was it that the same group of people kind of you know, drained all the water, and now they've become desperate to find water. It was such an irony that I kind of got obsessed with answering that question, and it and it actually led me back to grad school, and I, I earned a master's degree in environmental history trying to answer that one question, and that um, master's degree actually led to my first book, which was called Mirage, Florida and the Vanishing Water of the Eastern U.S., which sounds really weird now that we're, you know, so, so immersed in this story of having too much water again, right? With sure. climate change, sure. there are extreme rains, hurricanes are becoming stronger. So the story is again, kind of too much water. But at the time Mirage came out, we were in a big drought. And I think it's important to remember that part of our climate future um, is going to be when when we experience a drought it is likely to be more severe than those we've seen in the past so drought is really still an important element in florida even though um right now we're worried about too much water the pendulum always swings that is the exact here word. in florida that is the exact yeah. word i was going to say was was that we almost said it at the exact same moment florida's environment is a pendulum swing it changes and it changes in random extremes at times sort of when the when the structures and the systems least expect it right, right. so right. That's part of what makes it interesting to be an environmental reporter in Florida. But that um, 
that's how I got started getting obsessed with water. And this happens to reporters, right? You get obsessed with something <laughs> and you just can't let go of it. I and can relate. <laughs> yeah, that's a beautiful thing. And that's how a that's how a business reporter ends up, you know, writing about the environment for many years and getting obsessed with water and climate. Which brings us to the seashells, because seashells are truly a fascinating portrait of water and its role in the ecosystem. Where else can someone begin their seashell journey than on Sanibel Island? Yeah, sure. So I was I was sort of kicking about for that next book to write. I did know that I wanted to write about the oceans, and I wasn't sure how I would write about the oceans. And I had been invited to a lovely seashell museum on Sanibel Island. It's called the Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum. And they had invited me to talk about my previous book. And after the talk, I was out to dinner with the museum director and I learned the most shocking statistic. Um, they had done surveys of visitors to the museum to find out how much people already knew about seashells. And these are mostly tourists visiting Florida with their children. And the survey showed that 90% of visitors had no idea that a seashell is made by a living animal. Most people thought they were some kind of a rock or stone. And I was so, I was so floored by that statistic and, and also, also alarmed I, I couldn't get to sleep that night. I was just tossing and turning in my uh, hotel room thinking about it. And, and I think by the time I fell asleep, I knew I would write this book. <laughs> it, it seemed to me to say so much about our disconnection from, from nature. But, but the other thing I found really intriguing about it, which I think is true for people who know they're made by animals and people who don't know, I mean, we've always loved seashells for these spectacular exteriors rather than the life inside. And I think that's a perfect metaphor for the way we understand the ocean. We've always seen the ocean as this, you know, beautiful postcard or beautiful backdrop of life rather than the very source of life. So I wanted to play around with that idea and that metaphor that, the, that, you know, what we see in seashells is also the way we've seen the ocean. And, and that worked for me as a, as a good way of thinking about the sea so, and helping people understand it. So remember that question earlier, the one we talked about at the beginning of the episode? Seriously, if you did not know that there were animals in seashells, as Cynthia says, you are really not alone. 90% of people surveyed. That is fascinating. I cannot theorize as to why that number is as high as it is. Maybe we think of them as just something that just floats along. We, I don't know. I have no idea why that is the case. It doesn't make any sense to me that we just think of them as magical rocks, but sometimes people don't take a second to consider what they're grabbing on the beach. They just think of it as something pretty to collect. So let's talk about seashells. Let's talk about the basics. Let's figure out what they are. I, I asked Cynthia basically this exact question. You know I love asking smart people stupid questions. So I asked Cynthia, what's a seashell? Now, there are a, a wide variety of seashells, but there's really two types that you need to distinguish. One is a spiral type. Think of those as conchs or whelks. They have that natural swirl to them. You know exactly what I'm talking about. They they sort of fold over themselves. They are 
sometimes huge, sometimes very, very, very small. But that is one type you see a lot of on Florida's beaches. I'm looking at one on my desk right now. The other type are bivalves. Now, bivalves can be oysters, mollusks. Those are the little white shells that you see on the beach. Probably the most common type of shell found are bivalves. They are everywhere on Florida's beaches. But how do they come to be? Each has their own unique story. So to sort of speak to the seashells, to ask the dumb question, I mean, we're talking about seashells. Obviously, they're made by a living thing. But what are they? What What is the stuff? What, what is it made of? How is it formed? I mean, they create these elaborate shapes. They're very colorful. So they Obviously, you have conchs that are these massive curled structures. Sometimes they're those perfectly perfectly symmetrical bivalves. What What are they and how are they formed like that? Sure. So I'll start with who the animals are. Mollusks are the uh, marine mollusks are the second largest group of animals in the sea um, and on land. So they're the second largest group of animals after the arthropods that include insects on land and crabs in the ocean. And I'm writing about the marine mollusks that build seashells. Sometimes they're called sea snails or shellfish. And the way they build these extraordinary shells are with minerals from the surrounding seawater. So um, this is a process called biomineralization. They're basically gathering up minerals from the surrounding sea and turning them using the building materials to make their shells. And um, those that make a spiral shell, which you have just mentioned, I, I, I love this. When they're, when they're teeny tiny um, babies that you, you would have to use a microscope to see, uh, the marine mollusk that builds a spiral shell is is surrounded with this beautiful gossamer bubble that will become their seashell. And they're basically um, beginning to build that spiral around themselves. And so when you look at the very tip of a seashell, which is called the apex, like the top pointy tip of a conch sure. or a whelk, that is where the mollusk fit when it was a tiny baby and then it builds this shell around itself kind of on an invisible axis and then the others that you mentioned the paired shells like clams those are those are called bivalves and they build their shells um, right there at the edge and there are other other mollusks including cephalopods like octopus and squid that had shells hundreds of millions of years ago, but gave them up for speed. So, so in this book, it was, it was very difficult to narrow down how to tell this story because there are more than 50,000 marine mollusks known, many more unknown, and it was hard to narrow down what shells to tell stories about. So I ended up choosing 12 of the really iconic shells of human history and building the story around those 12 shells. That is an essential feature of this book. Every chapter begins with art of a shell and what that shell looks like so that when we're going to be talking about it throughout, you know what you're looking at. But then what she does is she traces human history through its usage of this distinct shell, and she provides examples. It's fascinating and a great way to get to know the shells in depth. 
But what makes this story unique, what, what really is essential about seashells is not just that they exist and not just that they are beautiful and unique, but rather that human beings have an amazing relationship with seashells. Oh, I, I found that the absolute most compelling part um, of this book, and, and I have to admit other books as well. I am a science and environment writer, but I am most interested in people, and I think our audiences are most interested in people. And so I really um, like digging into the human history. And this this was just so compelling, um, you know, from the standpoint of human history, as you know, the the book opens with me thinking about a Neanderthal girl collecting shells a hundred thousand years ago. I painted that scene and I was able to paint that scene because um, archaeologists know from these shell caches that have been found in Neanderthal caves that Neanderthals collected seashells for something beyond food they know that they collected empty shells sometimes in a very uniform way where they would all have a perfect little hole in the top and that's exactly how my daughter collected shells when she was five years old so i think we have this extraordinary feel for seashells that is partly about their aesthetic appeal and their, you know, extraordinary geometry and logarithmic spirals and all of those things. But there is also something so deeply human and deep-seated about our love for shells that clearly predates um, humanity and and just runs through us for these tens of thousands of years through all people through all time and and even down to modern kids walking along the beach um, I don't think they see as many seashells as we did in the past but children are certainly uh, still drawn to seashells in this in this lovely way but of course seashells are not just for our pleasure they're not just for our collecting and putting in a jar and putting up on a mantelpiece. They have a role. The animals inside do something within the delicate net of the ecosystem. And because Cynthia has written about the oceans, that is why the seashells were such an essential topic for her to discuss. The seashell, the mollusk's role in the preservation and clarity of the ocean is vital. And you're right that the values are so vast that it's probably indescribable in this conversation. But I, I just want to throw out a few things. One of the most important values of shellfish is filtration. So the, um, the bivalves, for example, like the clams, you know, clams, oysters, scallops, mussels, and so on, they're filter feeders. And so they are... They are gobbling up all kinds of things in the oceans, including things that we're trying to avoid. So, for example, there's a great restoration project going on in Sarasota Bay right now where Sarasota Bay Watch is reintroducing clams to the bay as a species that will gobble up red tide. So no one's going to be eating these clams, but they do such a good job of taking up red tide that they've become an important restoration strategy 
for the Bay. Wow. And if, if you just think of, you know, millions and billions of filtering organisms all over the seas across the world in every sea, filtering, you know, making, making the water cleaner and cleaner, that's just an incredible uh, ecosystem service, as, as the scientists would put it. And so um, that's a really important thing that they do for the environment. And of course, um, they're, they're really important in the food chain as well as both predator and prey. Of course, if something is this vital in its role in the ecosystem that it lives in, naturally what happens if that ecosystem is at risk? The ocean, as we all know, is getting warmer by a lot. And there's pollution, all sorts of things that are affecting Earth's oceans. What happens if the ocean is getting sicker and also the mollusks are at risk? What happens when those things start to deteriorate together? That impact is serious, and as I said with Cynthia, it seems like seashells are a bit of a canary in the coal mine for this climate emergency when it comes to our oceans. So I really saw seashells as ambassadors to help people understand what's happening to the oceans. And in my, in my work, I try very hard not to preach to the environmental choir I think too often environmental writers are writing for one another uh, or for environmental readers instead of for that broader audience. And I saw seashells as a great way in to, to a broader readership, to helping people understand the chemical changes and the warming that is underway in the ocean. So just to step back and, and talk about what's happening to the ocean, the carbon dioxide we send into the atmosphere has turned seawater 30% more acidic than it was at the start of the industrial era. And that chemical change has begun to limit the carbonate that mollusks use to make their shells. And acidic waters are also boring into some shells, like pitting them, you know, visibly pitting or eroding them. And mollusks are also very much threatened by the warming sea. The oceans have also absorbed vast amounts of heat from the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So more than 90% of the warming in the past century has been borne by the ocean. And when one remarkable thing when you think about this is the extent to which the oceans had protected us from climate change. Like imagine if we on land endured all of that heat over the past century, things would be far worse than they are now. So the ocean is a really incredible source of protection for us. But when it, when it comes to marine mollusks, they are impacted by both the warming, some parts of the sea have become too warm for the, for the mollusks that lived in that habitat, and then the other side of the coin is this is this ocean acidification, this chemical change is making it harder for them to build their shells. I mean, that's that's terrifying to, to think. It's that... So it, it is it is incredibly terrifying and, and sad as well. But I but I will tell you that there's some really interesting research coming out about marine mollusks adapting to both warming 
and chemical changes, sometimes in just a few generations. So this is, this is taking a while to see, but in a few cases, you're starting to see research come out about adaptation. So that's interesting too. And that's another thing I love about writing about these animals. They've, they've been around for so long. They're 500 million years old and they've lived through past acidic seas. They've lived through past warm seas. They really are extraordinary survivors. I mean, often, often it would be that most of them were lost, were lost and died, but a, but a, you know, a portion of survivors hung in there and, and lived. That's a really interesting thing about them. And it gives, it can give one um, hope in, in adaptation, but it, you know, it's certainly not something we can rely on. And it doesn't mean we should uh, throw up our hands and say, nature will take care of everything because we are, we are, are obligated to do, to do all we can and to do what we know we can do to, to help save the oceans and ourselves. Obligation is a word that I think is really heavy there. We have an obligation to do something. Mollusks within seashells, they have no obligation. They do what they do. They're animals. They survive. And sometimes they don't. But we human beings, as I've discussed many times this season, have an obligation we certainly like collecting our seashells, but we need to help make sure that they survive, right? Because like Cynthia talks about in her books, human beings have an amazing relationship with these seashells. They have been our money, currency, they've been our weapons, they have been our decoration. They are something that millennia, millions of years, billions of years, any humanoid with intelligence has been obsessed with seashells. We just love them. We're drawn to them. They are these fascinating little creations of nature. They just spit out on the beach and then we just grab them and carry them home and they're ours. But they are the exact link between something unknown to us, something unfamiliar in the form of a mollusk and become something that is valuable to us. It's incredible that that is a thing that has existed as long as it has. But something shouldn't just be valuable because it's pretty or interesting or collectible. In fact, mollusks are, let's just be honest, gross. They're gross. They're slugs. They're snails. They're, they're little gummy booger things. But are they less valuable? than the shells that they create? Do we only value them because they create shells? We can't. If we do, then there's something wrong with us. We have to value them because they are animals that are worthy of continuing to exist and worthy of having a role in our net and not just because we sure would like to find another conch on our shores. Their value must be more than the case that they carry. We must value them that way. The animal within the shell must be as important as the shell that we carry home. And one last thing before I go. How could I talk to Cynthia Barnett, an expert on seashells and seashell experts, and not ask her what her favorite shell is? I told her mine. It is the coquina. Maybe. I don't know. It changes from day to day, but I think the coquina is probably my favorite. They're colorful little jewels on the sand and they wiggle. I mean, they wiggle back into the sand. It's amazing. So I think that's probably my answer. 
Here's Cynthia's. I love coquinas too, and I will tell you that I do have a favorite shell, and that would be the lightning whelk, um, which I devote a chapter to. Yeah. And I, I grew up, I grew up loving lightning whelks and not knowing. I, I thought they were conks and sure learning you know learning about the lightning whelk but also more importantly for me learning about the calusa people of florida and right. these great cities of shell that had been built you know right in the area where where i grew up and and i didn't really understand those those cities or those people before um, doing all these interviews and research, so that was that was a great honor. And you know, we're not hardcore shell collectors because we do have a favorite shell. <laughs> if you ask, if you ask a hardcore shell collector, these experts are called conchologists. If you ask them their favorite shell, they they could never answer that question <laughs> because it's like asking a mother to name her favorite child. They just will not do it. They love all shells. And so that's how you know I'm a total amateur. I do have a favorite seashell. And in fact, my husband and I, before we were married, found a beautiful empty lightning whelk on this sandbar in Cedar Key right around Christmas time. And we grabbed it up and we put it on top of our first Christmas tree. And it has been there ever since. Oh, that's great. Well, it's that holiday season. Why not put a shell on top of your tree? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. I have talked about Sanibel many times on this show, including at the beginning of this season. I will include links to the many Sanibel episodes that I have done so you can go back and hear more about this fascinating island that I love so much. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for more, including transcripts of past seasons, photographs related to the research, and future transcripts as I pull those together. There will also be photographs from trips around the state and other resources for you to learn more about the subjects and more resources from guests on this show. Head to WFMPod.com for more and keep your eye out because new things will be coming there very, very soon. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me to know what you like about this show, what you would like to see more of from this show. Seriously, I want to hear it. Tell me how you feel about the show. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. And if you want to send me an email, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you once again to Cynthia Barnett. You have to read The Sound of the Sea. It's a wonderful beach read, naturally. So maybe when summer approaches, pick up a copy of The Sound of the Sea or pick it up now so that it's already ready when it's time to go back to Florida's shores. Thank you to Cynthia Barnett. I will include a link so you can pick up her book. It is such 
a fascinating read. There is so much within it that we didn't even go in depth in on the show, so I hope to have Cynthia back sometime in the future so you can hear more of her amazing work. All right. Next week, we are approaching the end of this season. Only two episodes left in the conservation season. And of course, the second annual Wait 5 Minutes holiday special, which I cannot wait for you to hear. It's going to be such a treat. But next week, part of Florida's nature has been, frankly, ignored this season. We've talked a lot about animals and a lot about water, but we have not talked about our plants what I learned in the research of this next episode is that that is more common than you'd think. So next week, we speak with the Florida Native Plant Society about a project they are doing to try to keep a tree alive and about the unfortunate condition known as plant blindness. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Look into getting vaccinated to support those around you. And if it's time to get your booster shot, look into that as well. And of course, as always, drink more water. I will see you in December in one week. Till then, have a good one.